This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on the Morning Run, and I'm Philip C. It's the last Wednesday of the month, and as usual, we have The Legal Property Show. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Ringo Lau from Ringo Lau & Associates about the complexities of tenant-landlord relationships. Good morning, Dr. Ringo. Welcome to the show. Ringo, one of the big things we want to talk to you today is about the rights specifically with uh, the tenants. Yeah, So wanted to just deep dive a bit on the legal implications of the relationship between a tenant and the landlord. I mm. wanted to get your understanding right. Like, What do you think are the most misunderstood rights of the tenant? One has to start with the category of uh, negotiating for a contract first. Mm. I think we've got to start with negotiating a contract and then uh, performance of the contract and then termination of contract. Now, mm. if we look at the negotiation for a start of a contract, I think uh, it's very crucial that there must, first of all, be an inspection of the place. Yeah. Uh, because one cannot just simply sign up a tenancy with just a cursory uh, examination of a place because mm. there could be issues involving, first of all, the condition of the premises and then the water and electricity bills, where, whether they were previously settled, mm. what is the cut-off date, and then basically the terms of the contract that has got to be fair to both sides. I think we have got to look at that aspect first. Yeah, it's true, right? Because one of the biggest elements of any agreement is the current state of the property when there is that transaction at handover taking place. And many times, right, they always say it's about accepting the property as it currently is, uh, accepting the property in its current situation and conditions. And look, are there very are there specific nuances and differences that sometimes cause a lot of tension and differences about the property as it currently is? Now, property as it is, there's somehow or other there's always issues about things, whether to be added on or taken off mm. at the time when you take possession of the property as a tenant. Mm. I've come across instances where they say it's okay, it's uh, it's unfurnished, but we have a, a little bit of uh, lightings and fans. So these are issues that can also bring about some dispute as to, hey, I when I first came, I thought, you know, you're providing all the basic lightings to all the rooms. And mm. why is it that there's only two fans instead of four fans when there yeah. are three rooms in a hall. So these are little things also that can create a little bit of unhappiness or a little bit of dispute right from the start. So it's best that one lists out exactly, even the condition as it is, list out what items are provided, perhaps have a video, photographs taken of that place. Now that will prevent any dispute as to the condition of the property as it is when one is to take up actual possession. Because from signing of the tenancy agreement to the date of actual taking of possession might be a week, might be a month, you know, so so it, things might vary by that. In my mind, right, photographic video evidence is that usually a good basis of defining the current SE situation. You know, I in my past, you know, when I signed rental agreements or even as a landlord, I never came across a video or photography photographic uh, evidence or proof of the current situation of this. Is it quite common now? Oh, now um, it is. Uh, still, now, now, now it is. You talk about 10, 20 years ago, mm. you know, normally people don't take 
video or, or photographs of it. They just list out the items mm. as an annexure or attachment at the back of the tenancy agreement. But now there have been quite many instances where they actually do a video shoot of the whole place round and photographs as well. It's quite common now. It's quite common. And so then does it get validated by a third party? How, how does it usually work? I, I think it's not difficult if you involve an agent mm. and, and you take the, the video together showing that there's also the face of the agent who would not mind to be captured in the video. Mm. Mm. So that in the event there's any dispute about who had taken it, when was it taken, who was there, then at least you've got the independent person, the property agent. Interesting. So just a 101, right? What's the difference between a rental and a tenancy? Is the difference really just tenure, like that one is longer, like three years? Is that the key difference between a rental and a tenancy? Actually, actually it's used interchangeably. There, mm. There's no real definition difference. You could have a rental of a premises of three years or more than three years. You could also likewise have a tenancy of a premise for less than three years or even after three years. Now, the reason why the three years come about is simply because if you have a tenancy of three years and above, it is best to have it registered so that you get protection against third party who may be eventually purchasing it from the landlord of yours and who will be so-called given notice of your tenancy so that they cannot just ignore your tenancy. And we talk about registration, what do you mean? Register with who specifically? Uh, you got to register with the land office. There is a procedure to register the tenancy so that anybody who, who negotiates with the landlord after your tenancy agreement has been entered into and then who wants to buy over, then they are put on notice uh, that the, 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 the so-called intended seller, the current landlord, has actually leased out or rented it out or tenanted it out for a duration of maybe three years or four years or with an option to renew. So it's all detailed there. So that That's a, a very interesting buyer would, would, would yeah. have uh, notice of the same. And, and can't disavow or deny any notice of the tenancy. That's a very interesting point because I was going to ask you the broader question about sometimes, right, when, when a property changes hand, when a landlord changes or shifts, there are many instances where the landlord doesn't know that the property has been tenanted uh, yeah. and they would be able to identify that through the land office, right? Yes. Have you seen many circumstances where when the property changes hand, there's a situation where the landlord then is not aware that there's always it's been tenanted already and how, how does that work out? Uh, let, let me share with you some experience. Now, <laughs> what, what I've told you, uh, Phil, for your listeners is only when there is an issued document of title to the property. Now, there are some properties that some title have not even been issued. Now, then you will have difficulty to ascertain whether there's a tenancy or not, unless you've done a site visit. Mm. Now, I had, I've had my experience of, of a, a commercial property in one of the commercial centers in town where the new landlord was on the understanding that the tenancy has expired mm. or soon to be expired. That's why he bought over from the current landlord. After buying over the property, then he realized that the tenant has actually surreptitiously got a renewal by way of contract document just between... After the, the signing of the tra after transfer After the signing document. of the purchase oh. of the property. Okay. And then the landlord ended up in a legal battle with the current tenant, so to speak, and it lasted more than three years. This is between the new landlord and the existing tenant. Who That's prevailed correct. there? Who prevailed in this situation? I, I would assume that the tenant prevailed in this situation because the agreement that was signed before was binding or did the agreement between the landlords spell out that the condition was that there was no tenancy? Actually, the, the renewal was surreptitious. Why I say it was surreptitious? Because it was just by way of some exchange of letters. There wasn't even proper tenancy agreement. 
Mm. So, so in a way, one could say that the the new landlord has been played out. Yeah. Because there's no way of ascertaining what was shown to the new landlord was that ah, this tenancy agreement will expire in two or three months after you've taken over. But then subsequently, there was a surreptitious renewal by way of a exchange of letters. So when these things happen, I mean, what kind of legislation is anchoring these decisions by the court? Are we talking about the Contracts Act 1950, where there are conflicts on the tenancy agreement? Is it a matter of Distress Act 1954 over matters of eviction? When in that specific case that you talk about, right, what legislation was dictating or determining that uh, that that case? It will have to be Contracts Act, basically. Because you, you you have a contract with your old landlord and then the, the old landlord plus a new landlord has got a contract for the sale of the property and whether the warranty is there about the tenancy has had been breached or overlooked. So basically, it's still the Contracts Act. But of course, it involves two contractual situations, one between the landlord and the tenant of mm. the past landlord and then the sale and purchase agreement between the old landlord and the new landlord and then the so-called oral contract between the new landlord and the old tenant. So, so how, how long can it subsist, like, basically, the yeah. oral contract? Mm. And, and so in your experience, what have been the grey areas in, 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 in the debates here, right? What what usually is not clear yet in, in when, when you make these, when you go through these cases? At, at the okay, moment? then there is this expectation of renewal of tenancy. I've, I've encountered a couple of legal disputes on that area as well. Now, landlord would normally say that if you want to renew your tenancy, you've got to give me three months' notice or two months' notice mm. prior to the termination. But of course, the tenant will say that, yeah, I've given oral notice or I've renovated the premises on the expectation that you will give me a renewal. Yeah. So that kind of argument has been advanced many a time. Some have been very successful. Mm. You see, a, a lot of a lot of landlords, it's like, you know, they're just like, okay, orally, I, I will agree to your extension, no problem and all those. Mm. So you don't need to write a letter, you yeah? I, I would advocate against this approach. Please document it properly. Even if you want to orally grant the extension, tell the tenant, you know, give me your due notice. I will give you a proper response so that it will avoid the inclusion of so-called oral arguments or, you know, oral representations. So if everything is documented in black and white clearly, mm-hmm. then the court will find it difficult to want to incorporate oral representations. But if it is a loosely negotiated, discussed kind of contract for renewal, then there could be issues of, of oral representation. Because a tenant can easily come up with a bill to say that, ah, on expectation of your renewal for another three years, I actually incur this kind of expenses to stock up to build up or put up some renovation, they, they could easily come up with, with evidence of that nature to support their oral contention that there was this expectation of renewal. I would be surprised if the oral contention held weight uh, in the court. It, it can because the court will have to consider all evidence, documentary and oral. Now, if your docu- documentary evidence are all very solid and then from the experiences or exchange of uh, communication between the landlord and the tenant, if it's always documented, then there is very little likelihood of any oral representation. But like I said, if it is loosely documented, then arguably oral representation can seep in. Then it depends on the credibility of the witnesses as well. All right, we're going to take a short break for messages and come back for some more discussions on The Property Show. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Dr. Ringo Lau from Ringo Lau & Associates for this month's Property Legal Clinic as we discuss the issues that usually arise with tenants and landlords. 
So, Dr. Ringo, we've talked a lot about the tenant wanting to stay uh, and the landlord not wanting that tenant to stay. Can we now flip the script in which we have the issue of the tenant not paying rent and the landlord wanting to evict? What is the best way naturally of dealing with a tenant that is not paying rent? I'm sure that's very common now. Yes, and when, when you come to instances of tenants not paying rent or not up to date in rentals, so you need at least a minimum of two months default, and then you can invoke the Distress Act provision to apply for a writ of distress so that an order can be issued by the court to seize whatever is in the demise premises and thereafter to put it up for auction so that whatever sale proceeds that could be obtained from the auction of the property there can be used to set off the outstanding rentals. That is what you call a writ of distress or distress proceedings to be initiated. So it goes without saying that a court order is necessary, right, to evict the tenant. You it cannot is. exclude yourself from having from securing a court order. You, you, you cannot even resort to self-help because uh, there, are, there are contractual legal provisions entrenched that says very clearly you need to get a court order to evict somebody out. Let's talk about early termination clauses. Is that usually a big point of contention in the sense that sometimes if it's written in the rental agreements, you really have to comply with that and assume that you will have to pay for the full amount, right? Unless it's an early termination provision there. In your experience with rental agreements, do they typically have early termination clauses and how tight are the early termination clauses usually? Well, in most well-written uh, tenancy agreements, there would be early termination clauses. Early termination clauses basically means that if you terminate before the expiry or the end of the term, you are liable to continue to pay the rentals for the remainder of the term to the landlord. So that provision is usually inserted in most tenancy agreements to protect the landlord so that you cannot just, after signing a three-year term, decides to leave after two years and not wanting to settle the balance one year. But yes, the landlord can invoke that. But mind you, once you invoke that provision, you technically cannot lease out or rent out the property for the rest of the duration. Because under the law, if you are claiming for the balance one year in the example, I quoted, so technically you can't be on the one hand saying that you're liable for that one year. And then on the other hand, you start renting it out to somebody else unless you account for the rentals that you have collected with a new tenant and then to set off against the total outstanding by the old defaulting tenant. So it is essentially lost opportunity and you cannot have double recovery because of revenue to have done the recovery. And if that was the case that the, the landlord did secure another tenancy, can the previous tenant then go to the court and recover that amount that they had paid because of the lost opportunity? Yes, they, 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 they can, they can. They will, they will have a right of recourse there. But normally what would happen in the example I've given, one year balance of the tenancy that still remains outstanding, right? And then the tenant decides to call it quits and, and, and move out regardless of, the, of what the landlord says. Now, the landlord, after two months, let's say, found a tenant. So the landlord has lost out two months of tenancy. Mm-hmm. Found a tenant. If it's at the same rental, the landlord did not suffer any losses, right? For the balance of the 10 months left for the initial contract with the defaulting tenant. So the law does not allow for double recovery. The law allows you, even with early termination clause, to recover the loss that you have rightfully suffered. So I want to throw another scenario to you where the landlord basically finds that the property is severely damaged after the security deposit is paid. What's the, what's the recourse there for the landlord when 
they find that, you know, they've already returned the security deposit. Uh, but then when they go upon inspection, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have time. It was overseas or, you know, the property was done overseas. What then happens then? I mean, I presume there's no way to get compensation from the tenant. Uh, you, you can, but you have to resort to getting a lawyer to sue for it. Yeah, because once you've returned the security deposit, you know, so you don't have the upper hand of retaining it. You can still you can still go for a joint inspection, invite the tenant to come for joint inspection and then show the tenant that there are still major repairs because of damage and all those. And then see if the tenant is prepared to bear the expenses. If not, then the landlord will just have to do the repairs keep the bills, make sure there is adequate evidence, photographic or video evidence of the condition as well, of the property, and then effect the repairs and then sue the tenant to recover the cost of the repairs. Oh, so it's still possible. Huh? It, it, you, you can, but then again, whether it's worth it, you see? Mm. Because if the repairs are just a couple of thousands and then to get to a lawyer, you know that, you know, you will be spending a few thousand anyway. <laughs> so whether it's worthwhile or not, yeah. On, on the easiest scenario then, where the deposit hasn't been paid, but the damages exceed the deposit then. That, I guess, is a bit more straightforward. You will try, you will not return the deposit. It's easy. Um, but if the damages exceed the deposit, you will also take the same process, right? Definitely. Yes, you can. You should. Yes. When I listen to you, it really all boils down to uh, developing a very much watertight rental agreement. It is about at the start of the process, as we discussed just now, the as is condition of the property, stating it very clearly and having a robust rental agreement. I presume there are standard templates there to be followed. What's your experience so far? Do you find people standardizing it and then adding all these complicated clauses that just complicate matters so much that ends up being very much open to interpretation? Or would your counsel be everybody should just follow those standard rental agreements? What's your experience on this? I, I've, I've encountered a lot of clients who rely on substandard template. If they have a good template, yes. And if their command of the language is good enough, yes, they can draft their own tenancy agreements. I mean, they, they must understand the clauses well enough. But uh, there are few and far in between of lay people who can really draft from a good template. Now, those substandard templates create a lot of problems and a lot of opportunities for lawyers to make a living. <laughs> yes. yes, including yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, but and I always advise them is you know it's to do up a tenancy agreement. It's not very expensive. The amount that you pay your property agent is usually more than what you'll be paying your lawyers to come up with a good tenancy agreement. Don't be penny wise pound foolish. At the end of the day, once it lands up in court with a legal dispute, you'll be spending many more thousands. <laughs> It's not worth it. I presume you don't go to a lawyer for these simple rental agreements, right? The the lawyer, the legal professional really comes in when there's a dispute per se. But when drawing up these agreements, if you just go to a reputable agent uh, who really has the experience to, to essentially source the, the standard best practice agreements, that's all fine and dandy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, if you get to a good reputable uh, uh, property agent, and then you can understand what's being crafted in their, their standard template. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, but please make an effort to read through the courses and understand it. Because a lot don't bother. They just leave it to, to the, to the uh, agent. And then the agent are not very good in explaining. So there could be issues later on. I got to say, in my experience, usually people just look at the appendix 
they don't look at the body of the agreement. We tend to look at the numbers, the tables in the appendix as a guiding principle. That's a big fallacy, isn't it? There are key clauses in the main agreement that we should be looking out for. Which ones in particularly are ones that stand out to you that really are important? I I think one would look at the obligations of the landlord and the tenant. What is spelled out there? Because I've got tenancy agreements that I've seen that obligations of the landlord is very minimal, whereas obligation of tenant can run into 30, 40 paragraphs. So you've got to be very careful about how you want it to be crafted. Just be mindful of those two sets of obligations, I think, would, would help you to go along with the tenancy agreement and the tenancy in peace. As we see a new administration coming in for this government, perhaps the rights of tenants will be very much uh, a key focus area, right, in addressing cost of living issues because people will be under a lot of strain and pressure going forward. What do you think are some of the best uh, ways the government can do to create law of clarity so that people, you know, are not out of pocket, both on the tenant side and landlord side? I, I, I think they can come up with standard template for the tenancy agreement, like what they've done for the sale and purchase agreements under the, the Housing Developers Control and Licensing Act. Yeah. They could do something like this for tenancy agreement. You could do one for, for residential, you could lend a property, you could do one for the condominium, you could do one for commercial properties. Now, if they can come up with a standard template, that would be very helpful. Then a lot of lawyers will be very unhappy with this suggestion. <laughs> Including you, but not, not you for sure, isn't it? You would be more than happy because you are all of the intention to reduce the disputes. Yes, of course, of course. So, so on, on that score, I think that would be very helpful. And then we can have a, a what you call a rent tribunal so that when there are disputes, let's refer to a rent tribunal, have it in all states as well so that there's a tribunal chairman and then there are, there are vice chairman or, or, or assistants to help out in various states and districts and all those. So when they have issues like this, they can go there and help it resolve without running to lawyers and going to courts. I think that would be very helpful for the rakyat. That's all the time we have for today's property show. Thank you for being on the show, Dr. Ringo. I'm Philip C. signing off for the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.